Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. I'll give you a moment to look for that in your Bible. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore and saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late... His disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to, the, up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tony. Well, today we head back into our, uh, and I'm looking forward to it, our, our gospel series uh, of Mark, on the gospel of Mark, and uh, again, glad you're here with us on this sort of midsummer uh, morning. I want to do a quick recap as we jump back in to this book, as we've had a couple weeks off, or a few weeks off now from Mark. Remember, it was the earliest gospel written, probably in the 50s AD. It's the account of Peter's testimony recorded by John Mark. You remember, it's fast-paced. It's action-packed. Out of all the four Gospels, it's the the quickest and the most action-packed. It's uh, immediate. The things happen immediately. Uh, And Jesus is portrayed in more in this Gospel than any other as a doer, as a doer. There's less of his teaching even in uh, this book. And we, as we unpack this book, we're joining Jesus and the disciples. We've been talking about envisioning ourselves as being on the ground with them, going alongside of them to get a feel as the the crowds close in, as we see today again, as the enemies rally against him uh, as we follow him to the cross. You remember the, the primary portrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus, the Son of God, who is a suffering servant king. So today we join him for one of the most uh, beloved stories, I think, uh, for children. If you've got a children's Bible and you've read or read this story in, in the uh, New Testament, kids love this story, but adults too. I think. It's a unique story uh, as we look at the feeding of the 5,000 today. You know a story is big when it shows up 
as the main headline, the front story, the main story on, on multiple news, either papers or web pages when you go there, right? You know it's a big story. If you ever flip between uh, a few different sites, you know, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, maybe a few other different sites, and you notice, like, uh, if you do that on a normal day, they all have a different main story, whether it's the editor's choice or agenda, who knows what it is, but they're always different. They don't usually line up unless, what, a really big story happens. You know it's big when you can flip between multiple news sources and see the top story lines up across the board. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 is only one of two miracles that lines up, shows up in all four Gospels. You know what the other one is? Somebody said it. Resurrection. That's a, that's a big one. That's a big re- miracle. The resurrection. This is the only other one. The only other miracle that shows up uh, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, felt that they should record. Why? is that? Well, number one, I think it's an, it's an incredible story. It's absolutely incredible. Can you imagine now uh, what it would look like to see five loaves of bread and two fish feed thousands of people? And on some accounts and some commentaries I read, they thought potentially like 19,000, 20,000 people there maybe. 5,000 men, but th- that doesn't include women and children who are there. Maybe families who are there. A, a lot of people thousands. Can you imagine what that would be like? Jesus, he looks up, he blesses the meal, he breaks the bread, and he keeps breaking the bread, and he keeps breaking the bread, and, he, and they say, he's breaking more bread. There's more bread coming. I don't know what they did with the fish. They must have a little knife or something and did a little something with those, but they just kept doing it, and it kept coming. Can you imagine watching that? But I think if we start this morning by doing, we're going to do a quick glance at some of the themes that appear in this story, we'll understand and we'll see how this little story is packed through with immense meaning, and it really deserves that top headline, all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000, it harkens back to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness and shows that someone greater than Moses is here. Someone greater than Moses is here. And he has not only the compassion, but the power to feed the entire world. And he uses us in the process. That's what we're getting at, to meet real needs. So we're going to answer three questions today. What are the big themes? This is the first question. What are the big themes? And then the second two kind of go together. What's this shepherd like, Jesus? And how are we to be like him because of that, all right? So grab your outline. There's a lot on it. That's what happens when you go away for vacation for two weeks. But we're going to go through it quick. It's just, we'll be kind of fast-paced today, uh, but I think it'll help you. Hope you have your text open as well to Mark 6 uh, as we move forward. Uh, We love to say at Bethany Church, God speaks through his word And when we open God's word, he speaks. So that's what we do now. Uh, Let's tackle that first question. What are the big themes? As I said, I think this will give us an idea of why all four gospels will record this. Uh, here's, Here's our first one. Let's take a look at it. Jesus, the giver of rest. It's a theme that pops up in this story. Jesus, the giver of rest. So the story begins with the apostles returning from the mission that he had sent them out on. Remember before the John the Baptist story. Uh, Maybe it was actually the death of John the Baptist that 
shortened their trip and brought them back. We're not quite sure. But they return. And they come back from this being sent out by twos to share the truth and love. And they come back and they're, they're excited. They're excited to share in how God has blessed their, their mission. And it's a quick side note, but I think it's worth our time for just even a minute. In this return, as they come back now, we see Jesus' model. His model for training disciples. Here's what it is. He, he taught them. He sends them out. They come back, and they report and evaluate. He teaches them. He sends them out. They come back and they report and evaluate. So uh, it's just a quick side note, but I even think that if it's Jesus' model, it should be ours too. We shouldn't probably try to improve on the way Jesus did ministry. Uh, as we grow and train disciples here, it should be our model. So let's say you lead a life group, or you teach Sunday school, or you go out on a missions trip, you serve on our greeting ministry. Whatever it is, we should train each other. Go out, do the ministry, come back together, talk about it, report, evaluate, get some constructive feedback, some coaching, whatever you want to call it, because none of us has arrived, right? All of us, myself included, none of us is beyond some constructive critique from those who train us. That's part of being in the church, training, sending, coming back, and hearing feedback so that we grow. Well, the ministry is getting tiresome for them. Life was crazy for them. Disciples had never seen anything like this or been part of anything like this. Jesus' popularity and fame, it's growing. People are coming and going all the time, the Scripture said that we read this morning. So much so, uh, Mark recorded, they cannot even get a bite to eat. They can't even get a time. Have you ever had a day like that? You just like It's 2 o'clock and you're like, I haven't even like, eaten anything yet. Uh, or, you know, you just, you're famished. It's like you're just so busy. It's like, I, I had a time to eat. I didn't have time to eat. We've probably all said that before. But wh- what does Jesus say to them? Look at verse 31. He says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come and rest a while. Why do we rest? Because this is a big theme in this, this uh, passage. We rest because, well, first there's a time to work. It means there is a time to work. Christians are called not to be uh, apathetic uh, or or lazy, but those who do the work of life, whether it's employment or family or ministry, church, we shouldn't be lazy. And each and every one of us has a role in God's kingdom and mission. But we can't do it all, can we? Although I want to give off that impression a lot of times. I want to try to live that way. And maybe you do too, or you struggle with that. We can't do it all. But as I said, in our time, sometimes my own efforts to maybe even promote myself or make my accomplishments great, I sometimes think I can do it all. And we end up turning good work into an idol. It becomes our everything. And Jesus says, your rest, disciples, come rest now as you've done work. Your rest reminds you that you're not God. I'm not God. You need rest. And you need rest with me, Jesus says. He says, come away. So he asked the disciples to rest and yet always be open to interruption. Because they're probably thinking like, oh, great, let's just get some rest. That was kind of tiring going out on the road and teaching and the risk we took. And, uh, and they're, they're supposed to rest. 
But even as they got in the boat, you see what happened there? The crowds beat them around the ocean, the sea there. It was a four-mile boat ride, uh, eight miles on foot. It's kind of, how did that happen? I mean, either there was a really strong headwind or a, uh, a bunch of people jumped in some chariots and kind of went, you know, went off. Actually, it says they, they ran, but I mean, think about that. They ran, think of families running eight miles to beat a boat that's going four miles. You know, most, I would have been like, tell them I said hi, you know. It's like, <laughs> they were like, gone, go, let's get there. They're running, it says. It's amazing. Think of the, what, the longing, the desire to be there and see Jesus. Well, they're supposed to rest, and they get there, and there's 5,000-plus uh, people. Can you imagine? Jesus, we were supposed to rest. You said we were going to rest. This was uh, our time, me time, you and I time, Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I get most irritated when my plans... When my perceived schedule, my time of rest is interrupted. Not Jesus here. Rest was good, yes, but something came up that was even maybe better. Jesus is the giver of rest. Our second theme, Jesus the provider. Jesus' actions point to God's constant provision all throughout the Bible for his people in this story. The disciples have, they have nothing when they start this journey. Nothing. They take nothing in this boat. But thousands are fed. And each of the disciples leaves with, you see, like a giant doggy bag, I guess, a big basket of extra food. They had nothing at the beginning. They had nothing. The story is to cause us to see that Jesus, he is the provider as God has always been the provider for his people, and that means he will be for you too. He will provide. It doesn't always look like what we think it will be, but he is the same God, and he will provide for you. Moses in Numbers 11, I said this story is to push us back to Moses, it is. The people there are over 600,000 in Numbers 11. They record standing there and complaining about food. They want food. They want meat. They want some substance. And God says to Moses, I will feed them, and Moses doesn't believe it. He can't believe it. There's way too many here. What, you're going to do this? Here's what, here's what uh, God said. The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And what does God do? He provides. We're meant to think back to these stories as we see Jesus now in the New Testament doing the same thing with thousands in front of him, providing. Providing what they need from beginning to end, and he will continue that. The second theme. Here's the third one. Jesus is the better Moses of a better Exodus. Jesus is the better Moses of a better Exodus. To these Israelites now in this story here that are in front of him, to these people, he's saying, I am better. I am greater than one of your greatest forefathers, Moses. Like, how is that happening? He is? Are you, how are we sure about that? I think this scene intentionally recalls the Israelites. Where did they? Where were they? In the desert, weren't they? Uh, the passage says three times, a desolate place. A desolate place to make us think of, of wilderness, of wandering. And Jesus is leading a better exodus as he feeds them in the wilderness. 
Like Moses, Jesus feeds them with His Word and real bread. He gives them the essentials. Remember Herod's feast, just a few verses earlier. Herod's feast, at the beginning of this chapter, was a drunken, uh, erotic party that ended with death, didn't it? A man's head on a platter. Same chapter. And we see Jesus' feast brings and ends with life and fullness as you compare and contrast them. Another way, the bread and the fish, to remind us of what do they eat in the wilderness? The manna and the quail that they ate. As Jesus sees them too in verse 34, as a sheep without a shepherd, we're meant to recall Moses' plea to God from Numbers 27. Here it is. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. The very words Jesus uses, or that Mark records of Jesus' thoughts here. Oh, well then what does Jesus do? He orders them in groups and squares to feed them in an organized manner. And most commentators think he did that And even meant when he did that to represent the encampment of Israel when they were out in the wilderness wandering. Jesus is standing there as a better Moses, a new exodus, as he sat them there on the grass. What Moses could never be to his people, Jesus is. He's the true and better Moses of our exodus from death to life. Not just out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, but death to life from guilt to forgiveness, from sin to righteousness. That's what we're seeing in this story. It's big. There's so much going on here. He's the better Moses of a better Exodus. Our final theme, Jesus the shepherd. It was our call to worship this morning. Psalm 23 is present and all over this little story here. Jesus' response to the gathered crowd, it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Psalm 23 is the, is the, the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, we read. I shall not want. I shall not want. And what does he do? He, he feeds them in his story. He makes me lie down where? Green pastures. Did you notice? They're, they're in a desert, aren't they? They're in a desert, dry and barren, and where does he seat them? Let's see the verse. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. There's a couple of the Gospels mention it. It's intentional. They didn't have to mention the color that there was grass. They just sat him down, but Mark records, he sat him down on the green grass. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus the shepherd makes them lie down in green grass. And a shepherd's job is to find what? Good green pastures for the people. Good food. Feed his sheep. Live among them so they will not be in want. And at the end of the story, they are full. They're satisfied, yeah. He restores my soul, Psalm 23. Jesus fills them with truth and food. There's so much going on here. We really, we hardly time just to scratch the surface of these themes, but can you see why this story matters? Why it's so full and why it makes it into all four Gospels? He gives rest. 
He provides. He's the true and better Moses of a better Exodus and the true shepherd of his people. So let's look then a bit further, a bit further at who this shepherd is. What's he like? And apply it to our own lives as well as we answer these second and third questions you see. What is this shepherd like? And what are we to be like then in light of that? Who is the shepherd of this story? And the first thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that he is a man of compassion. Jesus shows compassion, deep compassion, as we should too. It's our first point under these next questions. He shows deep compassion as we should too. So they come ashore and thousands of people are waiting for them. Thousands upon thousands. Have you ever been in a crowd of thousands? Whether it was uh, a concert, a rally, or whatever it might be, uh, uh, a crowded, uh, I don't know, a museum or a fair or something like that, uh, where there's thousands of people. It can be overwhelming at times, can't it? Some introverts are like, yes, it's very overwhelming. Yes, it is. Now imagine you were in that crowd of thousands then. Imagine you're at a fair and you're walking and there was thousands there. Then all of a sudden, all eyes turned on you. What would that do to you? And not only did they turn on you, they were clamoring for you. And they wanted something from you too. Imagine that really happening to you. All of a sudden, everybody just turns their eyes on you. You. And they just come at you. It's an incredible situation. Now Moses, in Numbers as we read, he grew frustrated when it happened to him. He got angry. As probably you and I would too. He was fed up. Fed up. But the better Moses, Jesus, sees the crowd, feels their eyes, knows their longing, and he responds with compassion. He looks with compassion at them. The word means he felt it in the pit of his stomach even. He felt it that deep. Uh, It's like maybe a better way to describe tender mercy is what Jesus felt for those people. Not annoyance, not, oh, we wanted to rest, get out of here, I need a break, maybe like the disciples were feeling, but tender mercy. So here's the question. Do, when you think of Jesus or think of God, do you picture him viewing you that way? Or is he aloof, maybe? Or maybe angry at you? Or frustrated or disappointed. How about that one? Just so terribly disappointed in you. What that means when we hear, see Jesus here, it means that he loves. He cares. He knows every single thing going on in your life. He sees your failures and knows them. He knows what you're going through. He knows your shortcomings. He knows you're hungry. And yet he looks at you still with tender compassion. Tender compassion. Just as he did the thousands. I have to remind myself of that. Because I tend to waffle. I tend to really not think that it could be grace alone through faith alone. And so when I make a mistake, I say, you know what? I think I have fallen out of his favor. I bet he's just sitting up there going, I knew he'd do it again. I'm pulling back from this guy. That's how my mind thinks. Yours might too. 
Because we have so much trouble thinking that it's by grace alone, through faith alone. Of course, he wants us to obey and grow. We're going to see that in a minute. But his favor, his compassion, his love never wanes for you. We have to hear that. Because I know in our congregation, we've got a lot of things going on right now. In your lives, in my life, in our church life, that cause us to question that. He's got deep compassion. We need the compassion of a good shepherd for lots of reasons. I love how Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it, this situation of sheep without a shepherd. Here's what he, how he described sheep without a shepherd. There were questions but not answers, distress but no relief, anguish of conscience but no deliverance, tears but no consolation, sin but no forgiveness. That's sheep without a shepherd. That's, that's not a great situation, is it? It's absolutely essential for a congregation to have not only the master shepherd, Jesus, but godly shepherds too, who serve the master shepherd, who come alongside as one of the sheep, but responsible for the sheep, guiding the sheep, feeding the sheep, leading the sheep to green pastures, or it's absolutely disastrous. That's what Bonhoeffer's saying. It's an absolute necessity that shepherds come and feed with compassion. And Jesus' compassion led him to shepherd the people. And what did he do first? Do you see that? Mark says, he had compassion and he taught them in verse 34. It's kind of interesting. He taught them. In Jesus' day, it's even uh, one of the Gospels mentions that Jesus says that their shepherds at that time, their religious leaders were like hirelings is the word he uses. A hireling doesn't care about the sheep. A hireling comes in and um, exploits the sheep. A hireling is there for his or her own purposes. So he looks out and realizes their, their shepherds are hirelings and they're malnourished and they're starving and they're famished. And so what does he do? He feeds them with the Word. He feeds them with the truth. He gives them like superfood, you might call it. He feeds them with the truth. It's just what you and I need. We can't live without it. What's the Scripture say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the good shepherds arrived in this story to feed his people the truth, to give them the truth. You've got to hear the truth. You've got to read the truth. You've got to share it with each other, the truth. We have to do this, or what do we become? Shriveled up, malnourished sheep, fainting when trials come falling over, um, lashing out at each other. Uh, when's the time we la- lash out? When we're what? Hungry. We do. We get frustrated when we're hungry. It's just natural, I think. Uh, we have to feed on the truth. We have to. The good shepherds arrived to do that. But he, he also cares for them physically. He cares for them physically as well. He cares for fo- both their soul and their body in this story. The setting, the day is growing long, Mark records. Sun is, is getting low in the sky. And the people have been there all day with Jesus. I mean, it, it's... Hard enough when you're sitting with your, you know, two, three, four, five kids that are hungry. <laughs> Imagine 15,000 people that were hungry. It's probably a bit of a, uh, uh, a situation that could get out of hand. They're starving. 
And Jesus is feeling this compassion in the pit of his stomach, remember? And they're feeling hunger. He's feeling this tender compassion in the pit of his stomach. And I love what Jesus does. They say send, uh, the, the disciples say, send him away or send them away. And look at verse 37. Jesus responds with, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and and give it to them to eat? You give them something. Uh, 200 denarii would be uh, 200 days wages. A denarii is about a day's wage. So 200 days of work to feed this crowd. It's preposterous. It's sort of an ironic response or humorous. But you, you feed them. It's ridiculous. But what is he doing? He's wrapping them into the moment. He, he, he's bringing them into his moment of compassion. And so for us too, for us too. Here's our follow-up. That compassion that Jesus shows, that compassion for us is to be shown in both truth and love to the spiritual and the physical need. Truth and love to both the spiritual and physical need. We too are to show compassion. To have eyes like Jesus, to look upon each other in our church now, at Bethany, those eyes of compassion for one another. Somebody maybe you don't know who's going through something. Somebody you do know well who's going through something. That I, those eyes, something that has a need, those eyes of compassion. And I have seen that in Bethany Church. I want you to hear that. I have seen that multiple places and multiple times in our congregation, an outreach of compassion. And I love that about our church. I've heard new people share that about our church. But let's keep growing in it more and more. I love that. How about the, the, the lost of Canby? The eyes of Jesus with compassion to serve them. But it has to be both. It has to be here as we're called first and foremost to care here of the body, but we too have a community outside of us that comes in sometimes, but we have to go out too. Whether it's a church ministry that we work with now or one in the future, or really more impactful even is on our own as people. We're everywhere all week as we go out. Do we look with compassion on those in front of us? Do you look with compassion? But it also can't just be truth or love. We're a people of both. We aren't, we aren't one or the other. You know, sometimes you hear, wow, we're, we're focused too much on doctrine or too much on truth, but l- let's just love. Let's just love. That's actually not love. That's maybe sentimentality or emotional, but the truth is absolutely connected to loving and loving someone. But it can't just be truth as well without love, and then we just come across like bullies, don't we? Or self-righteous maybe would be another word. It's both. It's both truth and love, doctrine and deeds, spiritual and physical. It's always been, and Jesus shows that here. It's always been. But here's what that means then. If, if we're to need to, to reach with truth and with love, with, with, with doctrine and deeds, it means we also have to be involved in each other's lives. We have to. To know needs, to really know here. We have to be involved in our community to know needs. If you want to serve as Jesus did, you have to be involved in someone's life. 
That's why things like uh, ministries like life groups at Bethany, that's why they're so vital and, and so important. It's not just that we have one other thing to do. And I get it. I know it's hard to block off a 10-week window and say, I'm going to be there every week and commit to that. But it's one of the primary places to be fed the truth and to get to know each other and meet real needs. That's one of the powers of small groups. That's why we can't be isolated individuals. If your only connection to Bethany Church is the Sunday morning service, you're missing out, actually. You are missing out on vibrant opportunity to be served and to serve the needs of of others. So the question is, what is just even one step today? What is one step you could take that I could take to move deeper into the body life here? One little step. Maybe it's something like life group. Maybe it's something like a covenant membership class. Maybe it's serving in the church in some way as a greeter. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's just praying with somebody in the gathering place uh, in fe- during our fellowship time. Or how about our neighbors? One, what's one way we can move even just a little, that you can move a little deeper into relationship with your neighbors? We have to ask both because Jesus meets both needs. The shepherd's compassion leads him to meet real needs, both the spiritual and the physical. And that's the second thing we see. Jesus meets real needs, real needs with that compassion as we should too. Let's look at the kind of the close of the, or the second half of the story. We'll pick it up in verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them to all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. It's one thing to hear about a need, and it's another to do something about it, which is what Jesus does. He commands the disciples something that seems impossible, unreasonable. But even as we find out in verse 51 of this chapter, they don't get what's going on. Verse 51 of the same chapter we're going to get to, I think, next week, it actually says they had no idea what he meant by the bread, and their hearts were even hard, it says, in that moment. And yet, they obeyed. Even though they didn't fully get it, even though they didn't fully understand it. And verse 51 even says their hearts were hard. They obey, even mixed with some unbelief. They obey. And God uses them in one of the greatest miracles that ever took place in this world. So what are some takeaways for us? You may think, well, how can I participate in God's work here? What could I do? Here's three quick ones. First one, just give what you have even. Just give what you have. The task is absolutely beyond the disciples. It would take 200 days' wages to feed this crowd. But the sweet thing about this story recorded in the Gospel of John, we know a little boy, do you know that? A little boy offered up his five loaves and two fishes. It was the work of some caring mother to give her son a brown bag lunch that turned this situation around. That's all he had. That's all they all had. One brown bag lunch. That was it. Jesus uses what they have. 
He intervenes with whatever the resources are. And that means for us too. In your life, whatever you have. In our church, whatever we have. So what do you have? Maybe it's time. It could be something as simple as a listening ear. Asking more questions of someone rather than um, talking about ourselves in a conversation. A listening ear. Smile. Handshake for our greeting ministry. As we give, tithes and offerings, that's part of it. I think I already said this, but praying for someone in the gathering place. All those things. But what we do is I, we tend to uh, compare and compete. Well, I couldn't serve that way. I couldn't do that. Well, then I must, what am I going to do? Who am I? Give what you have. Whatever God has gifted you with, however he's wired you, think about that. Just start with what you have because that's all they did there. One brown bag lunch. Start with what you have. Here's the second one. Trust him to work. As, as we're called to serve and, and meet the needs, trust him to work. Do you know, you do know this, God often allows situations into our lives that look like problems too big to solve, doesn't he? That's exactly what's taking place here with the disciples. Some of you are in them right now. He allows problems into our life that seem too big to solve or needs that are too big to be met. Just like the apostles must have felt here. Thousands of people. You feed them. You take care of it. Jesus saw an opportunity. They saw a big problem. Jesus saw an opportunity, not to show off the disciples' great faith, but his great power and glory. That's what he saw. There's a Christian phrase. You might call it a cliche. God will not give you more than you can handle, that I've, I've used, others have used. And I think it's intended to mean that Life won't get too hard or God knows your limits. He won't go past that. It's actually not true. (laughs) God will give you more than you can handle. Like he did with his disciples. Why? So we will lean on him. That is, it's true. So we will lean on him. Here's the the great news. He won't give us, here's how we should say it. He won't give us more than he can handle. That's what we have. That's what the disciples had. He won't give us more than he can handle. And that's, that's good news because life throws us more than we can handle all the time. All the time. I mean, really, everything is beyond our natural resources. So as we act, we trust him to work. And here's the final one. Come willing. Come willing. Step out to meet the needs willingly. The boy had one lunch, and he gave it. It wasn't a lot. He had one lunch, and he gave it. And the disciples had nothing, but they stepped out in obedience, and God worked. God did a work. God showed up. They just brought what they had. But you think about that, and I say, well, come willing. It's like, okay, does that mean just try a little harder? Does that mean... Uh, kind of whip my will into a frenzy so I'll become more of a giver by just working harder. I know my own heart. A desire to meet the needs of others doesn't come naturally. It just doesn't come naturally. It only comes when you and I are ones that become, like this story, truly satisfied in Jesus. When that happens, we give. Here's our third and final. When you're satisfied in Jesus' grace, 
you will give so others will be satisfied too. That's how we change. That's how our wills mold and get shaped and change to become even more and more people that want to meet needs. We've talked about it so many times. It's gospel-centered living, really. That's what it is. Verse 42 says, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. It's no accident Jesus was called the, the bread of life, who when he is tasted in faith, truly satisfies and says, the word says, you'll never go hungry again, Jesus said, when you taste this food. Never. It's only when you and I become more and more satisfied and full and saturated with him that problems begin to become opportunities. And the way we begin to look at things changes. And we find kind of compassion goggles getting put on. Rather than my normal, like, problem complain goggles, things change because I'm filled up with Jesus. I'm so satisfied with Him, I want others to be satisfied in Him too. Are you satisfied in Him? Is He enough? It's when we see that He ultimately went out to a desolate place for you. Mark 15, they brought Him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, where he died for you. When this becomes the meal you and I feast on, in the private of our homes, in our families, in our church, when this becomes more and more the main course, what we taste and feed on, we'll want to help others feed as well. It's it's only natural. It will happen. God's word is sure. When we've come satisfied in Him, He uses us. Kind of like a conduit. You know what a conduit is? A conduit is something um, that, uh, you know, either water runs through a conduit from get to one place to another, or you put wires through a conduit that protects the wires, and they, they run from one place to take something, electricity or water, whatever it may be, from one place to another. Will you be used that way like a conduit, you and I, Or does grace and fullness in Jesus Christ stop with you? Like a termination point, you might say. How will you be used? A conduit of grace or a termination point? So our final thing today. So be a conduit of grace, not a termination point. Fill up and share. Fill up and be a conduit. Do you know something? Jesus didn't need to use them. He could have, he's God. He could have created bread out of nothing, just snapped his fingers, and there could have been a you know, four-course meal on tables in front of them. He didn't need to use them. But he loves to use us. He loves to work through you. He loves to do that. A conduit or a termination point. You sit back from the meal of Jesus and doze into a food coma. I do that on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Or do you overflow as a funnel, as a channel, as a conduit of what you've received onto others? A channel of God's grace. We're leaving it with a question this morning. We're leaving it with that question. Are you a conduit of grace or a termination point? Let's pray. Lord, we...
I know, I know that our people want to be conduits of grace, and we are. I'm so grateful for the ways I've seen, we have seen, we've experienced, all of us, just the, the service and kindness and compassion of our body here amongst ourselves and even in the community, Lord. And yet I know, as Jesus' model was to send out, come back and, and hear feedback and grow, we, we too, we are continuing that. We have not arrived. None of us have, and we all want to continue to grow in how we love and serve each other and serve the community of Canby. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, make us so overwhelmed with the gospel of grace, so filled up on Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit, that we function as conduits. Let Bethany Church never be said to be a termination point where it stops, but let us be full of the love and mercy of Christ, that tender compassion, and may it flow through us to others. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we are, we sort of let David off the hook. He's got a little something going on called camp with like a bunch of kids in a minute where they're packing up and there's a, you know, we saw the trailer out there there's, and our kitchen's full of food and I'm excited. He's getting to partner with Grace Point Church where his brother is. Uh, the, the, the youth pastor. So they're going to do an event together and bring, we're bringing our two churches together in a partnership. It's going to be a great week. Uh, he's out getting ready for that. Uh, we're going to close the, a benediction in a moment. But we had something special we wanted to do to close our service today before uh, we finish. Um, we have a dear beloved saint, Norma Clark. Where's Norma? There's Norma. Hi, Norma. Norma's turning 95 tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. And I thought it'd be, it's absolutely appropriate to honor Norma for a moment. And even as we think about, uh, Norma has been one who has been a conduit. And has ser- a conduit of grace. You're one who has served in the community. Here's what she has. Here's some of her. She was uh, uh, married to Gill, and they began serving with Wycliffe in 1972, I think. Is that 1972? Uh, serving in Africa and Huntington Beach and Mexico and Idlewild. And then finally in the Northwest Regional Office in Portland. You guys have been all over. Uh, during her time with Wycliffe, she served from office manager to finance department and recruitment, and I, I think wherever uh, she was needed, I, uh, so I've heard. Uh, one of her greatest gifts, though, was being a hostess to all who entered her home and her office. Your daughter said that about you. <laughs> a great hostess to all who entered her home and office over those years. So we're going to have you stand. We're going to sing happy birthday to you because 95 is a big deal. And then we've got cake to celebrate you out in the gathering place today. Will you stand, Norma? Let's sing to Norma. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Norma, happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you, Norma, for all your uh, service and just what you mean to our church here uh, and uh, yeah, happy birthday to you. And as I said, we have cake out there. Use this as an opportunity to hang around a little longer today. Eat some cake, meet somebody new, uh, be a conduit of grace as we share and love one another uh, today out in the gathering place. And then let's all stand now as we uh, bless one another as we head out today as well.